Hello, and welcome to the next installment of the SUAS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and uh, I guess Gene is, is probably off on a search today, so I'm, I'm flying solo, which is okay. Had to do that before on the uh, over the last decade of the uh, SUS News podcast series, so it's not a big deal, and it gives us more time to uh, talk to our guests. Today we have from uh, we have Tony White, who's the founder of Galaxy UAS. Tony, you out there? I'm here. All Good right, and Jason. All right, good. And uh, Jason White, managing partner of Galaxy UAS. Jason. I am here. <laughs> You're here. Greetings. And, uh, greetings. All right. So uh, today's uh, podcast is uh, Galaxy uh, UAS. Um, and uh, so we're going to basically talk to these guys about kind of what they've been doing, what they're doing currently. But before we get into that, um, I, what I like to usually do is let the guests give us a little brief bio of uh, what they've been up to for however long and how they got into unmanned aircraft systems. And uh, as I've said in the past, it's, it's hard for me to give somebody a buy or, you know, hit the high points of their career that usually has spanned at least 20 years. So I'm going to ask uh, Tony, if you would uh, go first, give us a you know, the, the high points of what you've been doing. Uh, I know, you know, a lot of people think drones are new. You've been at this for a long time. So maybe you could give us the, the high points, uh, of, you know, of your career in bio for the benefit of the um, listeners. Copy that. High points it is. Uh, yeah, Tony White Galaxy Unmanned Systems. We've been, uh, been kicking around this industry since the uh, early 80s, um, doing it flying RC before that, got into it through the hobby, through my father, and, um, you know, went through the military, went to the Army, ended up heading up a, a target drone program in the military, then got out, then me and my brother started uh, with, like, um, we're getting a lot of requests to do, uh, you know, can you take a picture of this, can you take a picture of that with the RC aircraft, and that's kind of how we started back in the uh, early, early 90s. And in the 2000s, we just we, we took that and kept morphing it. We got into airships through doing um, blimps and airships through doing indoor um, jobs at the Dallas Stars and Mav- Mavericks. You ever been to a professional hockey or, or a basketball game, little blimp flying inside? That's how we got our intro into airships and blimps. So um, as we started developing more of the outside and more requests came to do like aerial photography, video, um, made us nervous trying to fly these big airplanes over golf courses and over people. So we uh, graduated over to, you know, let's, let's do this with airships. And then slowly over years, I mean, through a 10-year process, we went from a 20-foot ship to a 35-foot ship to a 60-foot ship and all the way up to 75-foot ship. And we ended up doing live broadcasts for ESPN on the NHRA. Um, and then, as everybody knows, 2007 hits. We get our cease and desist from the FAA. We were involved with the FAA the whole time, um, negotiating airspace. We were flying in Class B airspace with full approval, um, case-by-case approval. And we got pretty much shut down in 2007. Cease and desist were done. And then so we switched over to DOD, 
I made my my bones in the Department of Defense as a civilian, doing uh, contracting, standing up an aerostat uh, training program that's a tethered balloons. With our experience with the airships, we we and my brother stood up that program, the training for that, and then I graduated after that. I did uh, two deployments, one Afghanistan and one Iraq, flying the uh, Boeing Scan Eagle. And um, so him and Hod after that, you know, after that period, and then we, um, around 2015, stuff started looking good. So it looked like we might get a little breathing space, so we reestablished Galaxy. And um, and we uh, are slowly getting back into the market, but we have landed two contracts, one with the uh, – we landed a SBIR contract uh, with the Army. That, that's what got us going again. And uh, now we're on a phase two with the Air Force. So we're actually building something. We're building, we're going back to our roots to a 35-foot demonstrator ship, and uh, that's where we're at right now. All right. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So, uh, and then, uh, Jason, could you uh, please follow up with a brief bio about yourself? I mean, Tony kind of went into that, but go ahead. Yeah, I'm the other half of the duo. like you said, we've been doing our CR entire lives. Started our first business in 2000 uh, after I graduated with a degree in entrepreneurial and strategic management. So I thought, you know what? I'll hire myself and I'll start my own business. So I went to school. But we did that, and he kind of covered the high notes on that. Uh, of course, doing the broadcasting thing and then having to having to slink on over to the DOD to keep staying within our uh, wheelhouse of uh, unmanned systems. And so. So, yeah, we started the PGSS training program, and I stuck with that program for the entirety of its existence, deploying 52 systems uh, into, into theater and teams to boot, and then uh, decommissioned everything and then transitioned it all from a Navy program over to an Army program. And so have survived within the DOD sphere ever since as a contractor, jack-of-all-trades, uh, currently working on uh, product lifecycle management tools like Team Center, Windchill, that whole digital twin, uh, single source authority of truth documentation. Uh, that's been a wild ride. And, uh, and yeah, so we've also been doing the Galaxy thing, uh, reinvigorating that. And since, since I've uh, burrowed so deeply into, into the government work, I've become more familiar than I'd like to with uh, how that whole contracting process works. So I've kind of become a, a proposal writing monkey as of late and uh, written 22 <laughs> to this point. And we've won three and won our first one out. So that was, uh, that was like gave me motivation. So as I grind through these others, I'm like, well, I won the first one, so it's got to go well. But um, well, no, things aren't going well. And, uh, and I don't tell you mention this, uh, just under the, since we've refired things up in about less than two years, we've got about a million in revenue from those contracts. So it's really helping us get back into the space and uh, try to push drones back into the national airspace. Right. Well, you know, again, more, more stuff to unpack. So I want to go back, you know, both of you guys talked about how you like grew up flying RC and I, and I want to, talk about that, you know, your, your dad real quick, Ted, um, your, your dad, I mean, he, he, he built radios, right? And he worked for a, um, he worked for a manufacturer that, uh, built components. Is this, is, isn't that correct? Or have I have my wires crossed? He worked for all of them. He worked for everybody as they slowly went out of business. And in the middle of that, 
he started his own company, Galaxy 5, the Ga- Galaxy Radios, and his product was the Galaxy 5. And it was one of the first proportional, fully proportional RC radios on the market. So right. um, he did that, and then, you know, you, I mean, we, everything fell to Japan and overseas. So as each company fell, he went to – that's how we moved around when we were young. I was, in, uh, I was born in Oklahoma because there was an RC job there. Then there was an RC job in California where Jason was born. And then he ended up in Texas. That's the last RC job. And then, you know, just uh, – he kept, he, kept, uh, he kept up with it. You know, he had to do the VCR repair gig, but he still did stuff for uh, companies called L- – he, he did stuff for LTV, Lockheed. He was a go-to guy to build quick, rapid prototype um, aircraft. This is before autopilots. We did a lot of early autopilots back in the uh, – and this is what I've been doing since I've been having a little free time revamping the shop is kind of going back in the day and looking at all my dad's old pictures, and we've been framing them. You know, he'd been – back the Atomic Commission back in White Sands in the 50s, he was dropping uh, off a 60-size airplane, dropping these these uh, nuke bomb prototypes to see how far they would fly. Those are the ones that are – they were launching off the B-48 and the B-52 to see how far they could launch the, the, the nuke bomb and get away and survive. I kind of totally forgot about all this stuff, and it's neat seeing all the massively big radios they used to use, and it was all, you know, he had to fly through binoculars miles away, and he, you can see him looking through the binoculars flying the thing. So nostalgia is really great just to remember how old this technology is and, and what we've gone through to this point to get here. Yeah, well, it's a legacy thing, and uh, that's and so you know, and I and I kind of joked about that in the beginning when I said you know drones are new, you know, uh, so many people consider themselves uh, erroneously consider themselves like pioneers or experts or whatever, and I don't want to deride them on this deal, but this has been going on for so long um, that 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 that. That, that notion is just ridiculous. But anyway, and I did want to, you know, throw that out there, uh, you know, about your, about your dad, Ted. Um, and yes. Usually, I, I, I ask people, you know, to, to give the listeners a, a website um, towards the end where they could learn more information uh, about the company. But I think we should do that now because you guys have such a long history and have already accomplished so many things that people could actually, as they're listening, Look at the website and see what we're talking about. So, do you, somebody want to throw that out? Yeah. So the website yeah. galaxyuas.com. G a l a x y u a s dot com. And, and I, I suggest we've been we've been filing so hard on this stuff that uh, we kind of threw quick summaries out on that our website is definitely not keeping up. Um, with our progress and some of the things we're working in the background that I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, so just a, it's a good overview of our technology uh, as it was back in the day and some of the reinvigoration we're doing now. Right. So, uh, you know, as kind of like a full disclosure thing, I mean, I've known these guys uh, for a long time. We actually pulled you guys in as SMEs on the small UAS arc that the FA stood up in uh, 2008. And uh, these guys gave us uh, insight, information into uh, lighter than air, which was supposed to be another category. I think we were supposed to be category five. I will say that uh, 
you know, you guys had a lot of operating experience, um, experience, you know, interfacing with the FAA already. And if people didn't catch that when Tony said, oh, you know, we flew in class Bravo airspace, we did this or whatever. And there was a lot of, let's say, confusion about that. And people, uh, even at the FAA, were saying, no, that never happened and blah, blah, blah. And then they were able to produce documents that they had talked to the FAA and actually had it in writing from Washington that they could do. I mean, you guys were flying a 14-foot wingspan fixed-wing aircraft in Class B airspace. Am I right, Ron? Yes. Yes. So um, lots of operational experience. Also, the – you guys were doing some work for or some demos for ESPN and HD broadcast, and people were like, I mean, I, there there were people their their jaws hit the floor because they didn't even think any of this was possible. And I do think, uh, you know, that towards the end of the arc, it was they came to the determination that they weren't going to add this lighter than air. It was too late, too rushed, and too yeah. this and too that. Uh, and I thought it was a little bit of a cop-out. I, I thought it was viewed, I have to be honest, it was viewed as a threat because the only other, let's say, unmanned aircraft systems that could carry a 14-inch uh, EOIR sensor, which you guys were flying the Cineflex, um, it, it wasn't it the Cineflex product that you guys were flying? Cineflex, yeah, the VR-14. That was a full broadcast okay. camera. 50, yeah, and doing 60 H- times zoom, ridiculous. Yeah, and doing, uh, you know, HD broadcast and all the rest of this. And the only other systems that could really do that at the time uh, were the General Atomics products and the uh, Northrop Grumman products. And there may have been a few other outliers, but I, I think people were a little uh, taken aback and scared. And uh, that was one of the reasons that uh, we ran out of time on the ARC. And I say that, you know... Well, we're not even on the new arc. I mean, the new arc isn't even considering LTA. The new Beyond Line of Sight, LTA isn't even on that one. Well, and we weren't on the... uh, You weren't on the uh, UAS arc. I mean, the small UAS arc, you you were an SME on that. And then the FAA stood up a... uh, Stood up a UAS arc in 2011. I don't don't know. Were you... Could you... I mean, I know we went to France together, whatever, but I I found out about that when I was in uh, Paris at the uh, Peter von Blyenberg show. Uh, They just announced it out of the blue that they were having an arc. And it's like, well, wait, you know, I didn't, what, you know, why why didn't you tell anyone? Yeah, that was the one where they did all industry. That was Boeing. That was no small business. It was all big business. It was because they wanted the predators. They wanted the class two. They wanted the, um, the, the, the class three drones, they wanted those. Uh, and it, that, that all fell through, but yeah, we weren't even on that one. Well, no, and they, and they never even told the public, uh, at all. And then I, I had petitioned multiple times to get on that. And I was assured multiple times, uh, by Peggy Gilligan, who was the associate administrator for aviation safety, no commercial. They weren't going to talk anything about commercial. No business stuff at yeah. all. So you are right about that. And that was the reason that they didn't want um, any, let's say, non-DOD manufacturers. But that wasn't true because they went through the ARC, the small UAS ARC stuff, and, and helped them promulgate the rules. 
And then I was also going to go back and say, well, on the small U.S. arc, they say we ran out of time, but it took them nine years, nine years to put yeah. out a rule. So I don't nine think we years. really ran out of time. It just uh, they weren't interested in hearing that. And I don't think that they're still interested in uh, hearing about anything that will compete with uh, the, the DOD guys. But that's, that's a topic for another time. I want to yeah. kind of talk about what you're doing. So, and then also, you know, so you guys, we, we did that. Um, we uh, did a few other things in between. We, you guys did a demo for the um, small UAS arc, which was interesting. We, we went to um, Quantico, Quantico, Virginia. Guest of the FBI, we did the demo. Uh, I flew the Cracker Barrel. Um, I think uh, the Aero Environment flew the Raven um, and Boeing Scan the Eagle. Two, Yeah, they flew the Scan Eagle. And you guys flew that. That was the 60 footer at that. Yeah, the 60 foot ship. So, and that was an interesting thing. It was pretty rushed, um, you know, which was unfortunate because that was you know, a military base. You guys were kind of put under a lot of pressure to uh, put together, inflate, and fly. Uh, it was a long day. and um, But anyway, uh, we saw the demonstration and everything that went on, and it, it was interesting. But it took them nine years to come up with the rules. So during that nine years, it's another uh, thing people always say, oh, well, you know, uh, we had to wait for rules, and nobody was doing anything prior to 107 coming out, which is just not true. There was this a vibrant economy. Um, yeah, you guys were, were were doing all kinds of jobs and had private investment um, and, and serious well, private investment. Well, a little footnote. A little footnote in that nine years that we were banned, European people were coming over from Switzerland, Europe, doing movies. Harry Potter, right. they were doing RC helicopters with movie cameras. They come in the country, go out. FAA wouldn't say a word. They'd even won Oscars for cinemata- cinematography, and um, you know we weren't, we were still not able to play as a U.S. company. Uh, yeah, and there were also there was a lot of other, uh, you know, Shell hired Evergreen. They were uh, doing mapping up there in uh, Alaska. They said they were doing some. Count of walruses or whatever. I call it the shell game because they were out there doing commercial ops. It, you know, and unfortunately, if you don't uh, have the money to lobby up for favors, you're, you're really at a disadvantage. And you are right about that. Uh, they what they did that, um, what was that movie with uh, Jamie, I think it was Jamie Foxx or Will Smith, where he was like... Well, yeah, the, yeah, we... we they asked us to do that, to fly downtown L.A. with a blimp. Right. And at the time, they're like, yeah, we can't hide that. I mean, we can't, we can't do that. So we had to pass on that, on that job. Um, but somebody else yeah, did I know it. What you did. Yeah, someone else did it. And the FAA didn't that was an RC, That was before drone. That was before multicopters. Exactly. But uh, there was flying cam, and that guy was all around the world. And that was an interesting thing, too, is even in uh, Paris, the guy gave a talk. FAA people were there. I'm like, how are you, you know, how's this, how's this happening in the United States? Oh, they know we're safe. They said we're okay, blah, blah, blah. You know, anyway, it still goes on. People are doing whatever they want to do, and you know, that's a whole other story. But anyway, um, so when, you know, 2000, February 7th, or, 2000, or February 13th, 2007, uh, you know, co- commercial operations ceased. 
without rhyme or reason. And I remember, you know, and we talk about this all the time. June usually backs me up on this as they were like, you know, 60, 90 days, uh, six months, we're going to have rules and you guys will be flying again. And I said, okay, that's great because, you know, people can't hold out. So when people think about this, you know, they think, oh, okay, well, yeah, I'm, I, I've got my quadcopter and I'm going to go out and do that. Well, you have a relatively small investment. Uh, you guys had a huge investment, and not only in time, uh, but but also in development and money, and it just evaporated uh, one day. And uh, you know, again, more full disclosure, I'd work with you guys on the pigs thing. I mean, really, everybody was kind of there was no commercial work. It, it just dried up. It was over. So the only thing that you could do to stay in this business was to look for work, uh, you know, with the military. And we did have the war on terror. So that people were throwing a lot of money around and, uh, you get to go to beautiful places like Yuma, Arizona. And you, you guys brought your families down there and, uh, with my hats off to you cause it's kind of a bleak thing, but just watching when you, when you guys, I mean, I, I, even that, that program, um, I, you know, I've, I've given talks on my experience with that, but I mean, I, I think you guys kind of glossed over that. I, I, I got there a little late, but I remember standing out there in the middle of the night in the, in the middle of the desert, watching what was going on. And you guys basically jumped into this thing. And what I, I, I remember these guys had a, at the time, we didn't even have the equipment for them to train on. But the no, first, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. So they it when was, they brought us. Uh, we got to see the system, the a prototype of the system, um, about what a couple of weeks before the first set of students showed up, and then uh, those no, the, no, no, the students. Up, the first set, the first set were there. The second set of students were showing up. They said you got two weeks to learn this thing before official training starts. Yeah, well, because right. when I flew in, it was. Uh, First time I saw it, uh, that was Fort Huachuca, and uh, I got there and wasn't there. There was like a some huge storm, and it was nighttime, and uh, you guys had to deflate the uh, deflate the um, this this aerostat that you had, and it was in some hangar. Really, the first time I, I you know knew what was going on with it. And then we went over to Yuma. And you're right, so you had two weeks, and I think that we got the equipment, trained the people, and they were shipped off to uh, Afghanistan. In, in how many weeks was that? It was a six-week training program from start to finish initially. So, yeah, to, to put a finer point on it, so we had the, the, fir the first prototype system was there, uh, and it was the, that was what we got to learn ourselves on. But at the time, we had just come off of doing ESPN gigs, and so we were, you know, kind of trained ourselves in rapid deployment, teardown of systems in the field. So that was our lives at that point. So when we got pulled into this, it was kismet in terms of, okay, this is just another thing. In fact, this one's tethered. We were free flying, so this is a lot easier. And we were able to uh, rapidly spool up because we were literally doing integration with, um, you know, high-dollar broadcast systems wirelessly. So this was even, you know, it wasn't even, it was a wireless component, but it was primarily through fiber optics. So it was kind of, it kind of aligned nicely with where we were at the time anyway. So Tony and I, we were able to quickly learn it. And like you said, we had two weeks to basically 
wrap our heads around how we want to train people and then stand up the first iteration of the training program, which was that one ended up being four weeks, the very first set of classes. Yeah. It was about a four-week class, one week of training, ground school, uh, one simulation week in simulator, which we quickly built for them, um, and that was basically teaching the payloads and, the, and all the software and uh, avionics involved. And then the third week was practical application, take them out, do ups and downs. That was Tony's uh, Desert Rat gig where he got to take them out yeah. and uh, early, early morning, uh, just do as many launch and recoveries as we could just to get them out of the system. And then uh, the last week was check ride. Can we get all these guys pulled up and uh, do some basic con-ops work? And then we matured that program to a six-week uh, training course where we had uh, a week. We were able to take it to a 24-hour cycle with three systems at three different sites. And um, uh, actually, and those were for various different environmental things, but the core class was literally done on one system, like one, one platform where we would do the ground school, do the simulation, and then they would do ups and downs during the day. Another team would come in that was in the third week, and they'd do a full-on teardown at the, in the evening. Uh, going into the night, and then an overnight crew would come, and they'd do a full setup from scratch, uh, and then con ops for the rest of the day, concept of operations, and doing uh, various exercises and uh, and PID stuff. And then the week after, and then another shift would come in and do their check ride on the sixth week. So it was a it was a pretty nice program, and we went for the entire time. Never had a, never lost a balloon. Uh, never had a never had a crash or anything. And uh, put out a lot of students, and by the end of it, we had, um, like I said, we had the basic course, we had an advanced course for people returning from theater to provide a refresher training program. We also had differences courses for other systems because we didn't just fly. It was the TIFF 25 Raven Aerostar system initially, which then went to a TCOM 22 meter system, and then later on we picked up a 28 meter system, and then they went down to a 14 meter as a test concept, and um, and we had various system configurations as well, plus you put a tower in there called the PGST. So we literally had all these diverse systems to train them on, and we ended up creating training programs for each in differences. And it was a, it was a fire hose of us learning and us teaching, which um, has served us well when it comes to, okay, here, here is the whole um, universe of things that are required for deploying UAS of any kind into any environment, and that I feel has set us up nicely for how we do airspace integration for the FAA, going to places like uh, the Mobility Innovation Zone that um, Hillwood is setting up out of Fort Worth, where they're trying to do use case development in the real world. I'm bringing this, you know, Tony and I are bringing in this mentality of, you know, we've done this for the military, we've seen the complex systems integrations and everything that's involved from production, configuration management, to training, and all the products in between, how do you do that in the real world? So for us, it's like, okay, these are all benchmarks we know we need to hit to get drones operating in it's, it's a much different picture than we did sitting in the ark back in the eighth day talking about LTA systems going, look, I know you guys don't think it's possible, but we're literally flying at Dallas Executive Airport. Here's a video showing our 675 foot flying in the pattern to, okay, now we've gone and done all of our homework, and now we can tell you exactly on the paperwork you got to fill out to do that as well. And well, yeah, 
and, and I mean, even just the the PGSS thing, unpack it all. There, there was there was some other stuff going on in there too. I mean, we came up with other training for the VIPs and officers. Uh, oh yeah, NATO yeah, allies. Well, or, yeah, you know, another thing, we, 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 well, real quick, we, we, yeah, we, we turned the Aerostat world on air because when Jason's saying we had all these iterations of training, people forget this is an Aerostat, this is a balloon. It has to be inflated and deflated, and we did it in all weather conditions. Now, the Aerostat world, before me and him came in, was only fair weather. You can only fill these things dead calm. You can only do this. We didn't have time to hear that. So we, do, and like Jay said, we never lost one. We never even damaged one. And this is Cherry, never, never touched an airstep before operators coming in. So we developed this, we developed a method to, do, to inflate and deflate, deploy, launch, and recover in 20 mile an hour, 15. You know, we, there was no sick days. There were no days off because it would destroy the training cycle. And that was unheard yes. of in the Aerostat world. But, and that went on, though, too. Uh, remember, Tony, when we were at uh, White Sands for the Army NIE? And what, what were, I mean, it was a uh, hurricane winds. Remember that storm <laughs> that came in? And, uh, I mean, I, I, I was concerned. We, we even, uh, the, the GCS, we anchored that. I think the, uh, the winds were like 70 knots. And it was an electrical storm. And if there are people that know this, you know, lightning could travel like 25 miles. Guy and it's flying an aerostat, you have a, a, basically the tallest lightning rod in the area. Uh, that that one was a nail biter. But you're right about that. Uh, and, and, and there were other ancillary products going on. Remember, they they pulled you off, Tony, and you were doing the, there were uh, several sizes of the sky bus. And, I mean, the thing was just going mushrooming. But uh, the the PGSS thing, and, and uh, you know, to put a to put a point on it. I, and Jason, you probably know the uh, answer to this question. That that was like uh, that was like an over two billion dollar project. Am I, am I right? Am I recalling correctly? Uh, it might have been an order of magnitude larger than that, but yeah, there was a lot of money put on it. Um, there was a joint urgent operational need on that started. I don't know, in the forty millions, I think, and then it ballooned into. I mean, we're doing we're doing fifty two systems, all multi million systems with uh, crews to match and then various hub and spokes, uh, hubs where everyone went. And I do want to say that, you know, a lot of that success we had, we had some really good instructors that we were, that we brought in, were able to train that guys that, you know, some of the guys, some of our best instructors had no experience whatsoever. And, you know, they were quick learners and, uh, and took to what we were preaching and uh, really did a good, really did a great job. So, you know, that whole, I'm really proud of that, um, no loss thing, and that was done with the with the help of some great instructors. And, and I, you know, I do want to uh, throw out there too. You know, you said it turned into an army product or project, but the Navy had it in the beginning, and we we did have some. Uh, I, I would say we had some good leadership in um, Craig Laws and uh, forget Timo's name. But uh, there, there were some good officers there, uh, Dean Stone and, and some other folks that I thought were, uh, let's say, helped us get make that goal. So, you know, there is there's some, and, and, you know, some attribution there. And I think we'll leave it there with, 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 uh, with the pigs thing because uh, we've gone a long time on that. And we could do, like, probably a whole show on it, uh, and it was good. But so, 
you know, uh, we, we talked about that. So there was commercial, and then if you wanted to work in this business, you had to do the DOD stuff, and that was usually in um, sandy and remote places. I know, Tony, you went on and you did some uh, – you actually went out and did two deployments with, with the Scan Eagle. Um, and, again, you were in the Army and all the rest of that. So brief, brief synopsis of what that was like as a civilian contractor. Yeah, it was uh, it's it interesting. I got uh, I got to both theaters as they were kind of closing down. So when I was in Iraq for the first rotation, um, we did a lot of tearing down and moving sites um, as as we were standing down. We had to keep getting smaller and smaller. And I think eventually we ended up because we were working for the uh, SEALs, the Navy SEALs. Um, we ended up in a, outside of the FOB in our own little pinned-up little barricaded area, and I was like, all right, it's enough. But the flying was amazing. I mean, it's like we saw, I mean, sitting over a mosque for, you know, 12 hours is just great. But mainly what I pulled from both of those deployments was how how we use this information. What What's the valuable part? Which cameras work best for what? Because the Scan Eagle is a small bird, so it didn't have both uh, uh, thermal and uh, regular video. We had to fly one bird or the other. And we always flew. I mean, if it was, if it was dusty, dirty, I mean, I mean when, when manned aircraft were all grounded, we were flying. I don't think there was a time we were ever gra- – except when they were, like, doing a, a radio jamming. If we had a VIP in theater or if we had a big convoy moving, they would jam all the radios, and, of course, we couldn't fly but other than that, we were always flying. So I got amazing videos recovering these things in sandstorms and, you know, blizzards. It was, it was nuts. And, now again, some of the best flying. And the two theaters were pretty much the same. I mean, it's the same enemy. It's mosques. It was, it was looking uh, convoys. It was always a support role, and that's how we're rolling in the new – that this is kind of like driving our application – because the, the, the theater of war has changed. Um, and the, and, and the fo- early pushback we were getting from the DOD was that, you know, airships aren't first line, you know, this it'll get shot down. It's just, well, no, that's not what we were doing with the Scan Eagle when we were over there. It was all support. Everything we did was to support a mission, to support a convoy, to just run up and down the road looking for IED threats and all this stuff. Even, even stuff the Scan Eagle couldn't do, we were still doing. Um, and right. then, so you wrap that into a you wrap that into a conop, and now this is what we're tailoring for the new battlefield. Because regardless to where we go fight next, there's still going to be interdiction after. There's still going to be after land one has to be protected. All the land that we win, all everything we conquer has to be protected, and that's the sweet spot where we fit in with the airships. So the uh, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq experience was. Well, and, and that, uh, I want to flash back on that, too, like you said, with the airships. I think uh, people, a lot of people didn't understand the uh, lighter-than-air technology. That was another thing. Oh, you know, if it gets shot at, it's going to pop like a party balloon, which is uh, not the case, uh, as we learned uh, from operations in, in theater. And airships, the, the program was extremely successful. Uh, again, we could probably do a whole other show on that, and I don't, I don't want to get too bogged down in that, but... So what we really build here is a story. You guys, we're doing multiple different kinds of unmanned aircraft systems, and I think even when you were doing them, they were called RPVs. These things have been called so many different things over the years. (laughs) 
But, you know, fixed wing, the lighter than air, uh, you know, yada, 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 going on, uh, commercial, big commercial. I mean, applying for uh, ESPN and sporting events and things like that is, is uh, huge. That, you had that on your And that's the, that's the rise and fall of the industry. We went from that to me working at Hobbytown, getting the defer, very first DJIs in the air, building those out, and then being uh, being very involved in the development of the current drones. So we've been, our noses have been into every aspect of this industry, the ups, the downs, the development of new tech. We've been involved in all of it. Yeah, and that's a, that could be another show, too, because uh... – what we witnessed the the business model of DJI and the demise of the American hobby shop and the culture of safety that was, uh, let's say, in the uh, in the hobby world that is now gone and whatever else. But um, so you, we've got all that. We've got all the military stuff standing up a, a program of record, um, doing all of that, these deployments and whatever else. And uh, so, you know, we were talking about this in the beginning of the bio section. We were talking about what we're doing now. And uh, so, you know, you've, you're, you're back into the military sphere and trying to also get back into the commercial sphere. And I think, you know, there's some issues with doing that. What, you know, budgets uh, still, and, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go down the uh bring people down thing with, with the regulatory side of this. So what, what are the goals? I mean, we've already, you've already got a couple of, uh, let's say contracts with the government. Tell us a little bit about what, what we're doing, what, what's going to happen. And then maybe what the end goal is. And it's up to you guys, whoever wants to take that. Jason, maybe, maybe Jason. Maybe Jason. Yeah, no. Jason. <laughs> so, um, Yes, our goal here is to get to get back operating in the real world with our systems and to basically take our old manually operated systems that we pioneered back in the day and reinvigorate them with all of the technologies that, as you said, due to the regulatory environment, have been rapidly developed without a whole lot of homes, a whole lot of places to go and, a lot of, and not, not a lot of commercial outlets just due to the regulatory environment. So as has been the case that we've seen with lighter than air systems, they're really a bridging technology to take you from, you know, early stage development of a concept like an operational environment to show use case development and say, look, this, what you're talking about doing is achievable. And if, if, if a heavier than air system scares you, a lighter than air system can put up, we can put up quickly and cheaply and integrating all the automated systems that exist today. I mean, we have driverless car technologies. Uh, we're working with uh, UTA to do some extensive sense and avoid and autonomous navigation and, uh, and change guidance in flight. All that stuff, we can show that. We use this platform. It's a, it's a big system. Everyone can see it. Uh, right-of-way rules apply for airships, for manned airships, and the same can apply for us. And, you know, our catastrophic scenario where it was max failure is more comedic than catastrophic. I mean, it's essentially a bouncy ball that says, okay, that didn't work. Try again. And it's, it's a way to demonstrate to all stakeholders that unmanned systems can be safe, unmanned systems can be a part of our national airspace and integration so that you can see these things happening. And then that, like I said, is transformational capability for the whole industry so that other players can come in with multi-copters, fixed wing, and we can start getting some of these 
industrial needs taken care of that everybody's been talking about. There's a satiation need out there to do these things, and it's just a matter of showing that um, that it's possible. And, you know, through light sure, and air, yeah. uh, you can really show that as a, with risk mitigation involved from the start. Right. And so and uh, how does that tie into and our strategy? Our strategy is to get, infuse these technologies and do use case development in the real world, essentially, and build the dual-use dual capability for the DOD and the commercial enterprise so that you have that cross-supportability in product development. Right. And I do think that uh, we have a false, let's say, economy with drones because of the flight envelope. And, you know, everybody thinks there's a lot of people that are under the uh, misunderstanding that, you know, a drone is a quadcopter. But the reality of it is, is in aviation, that aircraft really only make money when they're in the air. And if you are going to do things uh, that make sense, let's say, on a commercial or regulatory um, scale, then these aircraft are going to have to fly beyond visual line of sight. They are going to have to have long endurance. And I, and I do think that's one of the, the big benefits with uh, lighter than air um, you touched on some of those with right-of-way vehicle and beyond visual line of sight. I mean, this thing is when, – when, when you get up into what the, the 60-footer is that bigger than a uh, – or longer than a Cessna 172, um, if you can't see that and avoid that in the air, then I, I, maybe you shouldn't be flying. That, that's my uh, – <laughs> that's kind of what I think. But uh, I do think it's a great platform for that. What, what's the endurance, I, I, you know, on, on a um, – say a 60-foot blimp, Tony. I mean, how long could you stay in the air? Well, well, back in the day, we could probably do six to eight hours. Now with the, the, the new uh, new motors, fuel injection, uh, electric hybrid, we're talking days. Well, we're going into days, and the bigger we get, the longer we can fly. And the one of the end goals of all this development is having the perpetual airship where we, you, we Launch and recovery drones and swarm is a huge thing we're going after, and they make and they did it back in the 30s. You know they launched airplanes from the Shenandoah, so uh, we're doing a we're to develop the same capability, and then you know with 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 the capability of using drones to refuel the airship. Only reason we'd ever have to come down is to uh, to, to purify helium. Helium breaks down over a period of time, so we'd have to come down and do a purification. That's three to four months. And everybody's like, what about weather? We just run away from weather. We just, you know, if, weather, if a weather system's bad in a place, we fly away somewhere else, and then we come back. So that's, this is where we're going with the endurance and the flight capabilities of airships. Right. Well, and you touched on one other thing earlier, is that there's no, uh, you know, let's say autonomy or even an autopilot pre-programmed, pre-programmed capability for, for airships, and that's uh, – that's what we're working on. Jason mentioned uh, UTA. Uh, could, you, could you break that acronym down? Because there's so many acronyms. Okay. And then so, Tony, so we're, we're working on that. What, you know, give, give us a little insight on that. Well, we're doing with UTA and, and, yeah, with this effort, one of the goals, and this is uh, – uh, our, our customers, the Air Force, but the client that we're going to demo for is Border Patrol and uh, the Coast Guard. So that's the first. I mean, this is kind of like how we always are. We get tossed into an application the second we 
pop our heads up. It's not just proving a concept. Says, well, you can do this. So that's what we're doing, and with and, and the goals of this particular STTR is to get the ship flying autonomously, and that's from waypoint to waypoint. And then the second part of it is to launch and recover autonomous docking. And we could dock it on a mast uh, autonomously, and that'll develop because we're moving towards crew-free operations, because that's the big Achilles heel with all lighter-than-air systems is the crews. The Aerostack took 12 guys. Big airships now take 12, 13 guys. The Goodyear blimp, as much as they say, oh, we can stick, it still takes 5 to 10 to haul that thing around. We're going right. down to two operators and not physically touching the ship as it's launch and recover. So with it, and what is nice is the government's paying for it. I mean, this is what we're developing it for. And as Jason right. said, it's a crossover technology, and future partnerships with other universities is to fly, you know, in and out of airspace corridors. There's a whole bunch of development going on for, for drone delivery, everything, where we can do all the pioneering work of, of opening up the airspace and, and developing the use case. So, right. um, but none of that works without a good, solid, autonomous system, and that's what we're. And there is, like you said, there isn't one, and we're developing it. All right. And on that note, the show's over. So, uh, okay. Well, thanks for uh, being on, and uh, you know, I would I'd encourage people to go go over and check out the website and uh, see all of the things that these guys have done. So, you know, that's it for this week. Thanks a lot, guys, for being on. Uh, appreciate your time and your expertise, and we'll talk to everyone next week. Awesome. Thank you, sir.